partner and I have been struggling to try and save money this entire year. We got really lucky when we renewed our lease. Rent wasn't raised. We got our COVID and flu shots this year because our grocery store was offering 10% off coupons per shot. Uh, We clip as many coupons as we can and cook in bulk to try and reduce our grocery bill, and it doesn't matter. Gas prices have remained insanely high. My partner has to commute an hour one direction for work. So our gas bills are like 200 bucks a month. And it seems like no matter what we do, it doesn't matter that everything keeps getting more and more expensive. And I I don't know how we're going to save money anymore. In 2021, nearly 38 million Americans lived in poverty. That's according to the Census Bureau. However, this number does not include those above the poverty line still struggling to make a living. According to the Poor People's Campaign, once you account for low-income families, that number is closer to 140 million. But what does it actually mean to be poor? How do people fall below the poverty line? And do we need to stop thinking of poverty as a line at all? We'll answer all those questions and get into so much more after the break. I'm Jen Moyt. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This episode is part of a new series, The Price of Poverty. We're carving out time to talk about poverty in America and exploring how poverty impacts children, seniors, and working adults. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment. Joining us for this conversation is Luke Schaefer. He's a professor of social justice and social policy at the University of Michigan. He's also co-author of the book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. Professor Schaefer, welcome back. So glad to be with you. Also with us is Jennifer Sherman. She's a professor of sociology at Washington State University. Her focus is families experiencing poverty, low wages, and unemployment in rural communities. She's the author of Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality, and the Diminishing American Dream. Professor Sherman, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And also with us is Liana Fox. She's the Assistant Division Chief of Economic Characteristics and Social, Economic, and Housing Statistics at the U.S. Census Bureau. Liana, welcome to the program. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Sherman, let's just start with some basic definitions. How do we define poverty? You know, in the United States, we define it mostly through the the federal poverty line, which I'm sure Liana can tell us more about. Um, But we really use a a basic income measure. Um, And that's different from a lot of other nations, which tend to define poverty more as a question of whether or not you can fully participate in your society versus just do you have enough money to survive. And so Liana, how does the Census Bureau define poverty? So we have two measures of poverty. We have our official poverty measure that Jennifer mentioned. Um, So in 2021, a family with two adults and two children was classified as in poverty if their income was less than $27,479. We also have the supplemental poverty measure, um, which is a more inclusive measure of poverty, which also takes into account taxes and transfers. um, And that varies by geography. So that varies based on housing costs throughout the country. So Professor Sherman, we have poverty, and then there's something we refer to as relative poverty. What is that? 
Yeah, relative versus absolute poverty. These are concepts that sociologists talk about. And the idea of absolute poverty is it really just is a measure of whether or not you have the basics to survive, you know, things like food, housing, clothing, really basic needs, uh, whether or not they're being met. And then this idea of relative poverty is much more popular in places like the EU, where they are really thinking about poverty a little bit more holistically um, as as a measure of whether or not you can fully participate in your society or whether you are marginalized by your, you know, your lack of ability to participate in different things. Um, and that's, we don't tend to think of poverty that way in the United States because it is, it's very much about the, the standard of living in your nation, in your society, um, and whether or not you are getting close to it. Well, and as we heard from Liana, geography can make a difference. So Professor Schaefer, what can it look like to live below or near the poverty line in a city? Sure. So um, I think of poverty as uh, answering the question of whether or not families have the resources they need to live a healthy and productive life. Do they have access to healthy and affordable housing, access to healthy food, and access to opportunities to thrive? Um, in cities, uh, we can see sometimes a mismatch between access to jobs and, and where people uh, who need them live. And so then uh, that uh, opens up questions of affordable transportation. These types of issues can actually be even more challenging um, in rural areas. Uh, access to housing, whether or not uh, housing is getting uh, more and more expensive in a city, and whether or not the, the balance sheet um, works out at the end of the month. Uh, and so a lot of the families who I've gotten to know over, um, over the years of work, uh, they might be working in a part-time job, but either because of instability in the jobs available to them or instability in their family life, um, they spiral into a spell uh, with very little money coming in the door. Uh, and uh, they have to resort to other uh, options to, to, to get the money that they need for their household, including maybe selling their plasma or selling their food assistance. Now, Professor Sherman, you study poverty in rural areas. What have we seen in those communities that's different from what we might see in cities? Um, I would say it's, you know, the, the basic issues are very similar to the ones that Luke just described, but uh, in some ways it's less visible. Um, you know, you're, the, the poor are often very hidden in rural communities. Um, and then I think with regard to those options that Luke mentioned in terms of, you know, other things people can resort to, there's often a lot fewer options in rural communities. There are just not as many ways to find that additional cash to um, make up for what you can't make. And then I think the the other issue that Luke mentioned that's really, really important in rural communities is transportation. Um, as he said, you know, in, in a lot of rural places, the jobs are so far from the people and the commutes can be so long and there's very seldom much by way of uh, public transportation available. So that car becomes really crucial to working. Um, other types of supports, including those for things like childcare, tend to be even less available in rural communities. Um, and, and it often leaves families with a really tough choice, you know, between the cost of working um, and not having income coming in at all. Now, Liana, the official poverty rate just looks at basic income, and that rate went up between 2020 and 2021. But the supplemental poverty measurement calculates both income and the money people get from government assistance, and that rate went down. Why did these move in opposite directions? 
Uh, thanks, Jen. So the, the official poverty rate didn't actually, it was not a statistically significant change between 2020 and 2021. It went from 11.5 um, to 11.6, but we don't, we don't, that's not a significant change. Well, as the SPM, once we account for um, taxes and transfers, it decreased from 9.2 to 7.8% in 2021. And, then, and we look in our reports and we look at the, the factors that are driving this and we look at the impact of different taxes and uh, the economic stimulus payments. And we find that the child tax credit had a major impact this last year in lifting um, families out of poverty. And But that child tax credit is, is not active anymore. So what will you be watching going forward? So we, we model taxes each year, and so we will be modeling whatever um, tax laws are, are in the books on the tax forms for next year. So uh, if we were to recalculate poverty with the old, the previous, the prior to the American Rescue Plan Act um, laws, we would have had child poverty going down, but not nearly as much mm -hmm. as we, we saw with the fully refundable expanded child tax credit. We got this question from Jessica who says, what does it mean to fully participate in one society? Your contributor has stated this more than once, and I'd like to see that defined more clearly. Uh, Professor Sherman, what can you tell Jessica? Yeah, that's a great question, Jessica. Thank you. Um, so it means taking part in life in all sorts of ways. But the, the example I really like to use um, when I'm teaching this concept is uh, in a lot of my research um, when I'm working with service providers, particularly, you know, a few years back when cell phones were still seen as kind of a luxury good, people would sort of scoff at anybody they saw with a cell phone. And they'd say, you know, you're not really poor, right? You're not, quote unquote, really poor if you have a cell phone. That's a luxury item. You don't, quote unquote, need that. Um, and so I, I often challenge my students to think about what could you not do if you didn't have a cell phone? And, you know, thinking about how much of the world has gone online at this point, um, that phone is necessary. You know, you need a phone number for a job application. You need a phone number for aid applications. You need it often to even just access the aid applications because, again, they're online. You know, so if you're if you're homeless, if you're moving around, right, that phone is going to become incredibly important for just even just accessing the aid you need to survive uh, poverty itself. Let alone, how are you going to connect with people, right? So. Are we thinking that, you know, people who are below the poverty line, poverty line don't deserve to be in touch with their friends and loved ones, that they don't deserve to be able to apply for a job? Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about when I'm talking about fully participating in your society, really just getting to be a, a, a member of it in the same ways as everybody else. Liana, which groups are most at risk of being poor in America? So that's a great question, and it really depends on how you measure poverty. If you look at our official poverty measure, which doesn't account for any of the non-cash transfers that we give to, to families, um, we would find that children are more at risk of being in poverty. However, when we take into account taxes and transfers, including the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, SNAP, WIC, school lunch, all of these programs, we find that older individuals, 65 and older, are more likely to fall into poverty. And that's based on our supplemental poverty measure, which also subtracts out medical expenses, which can be a real um, problem for pushing people into poverty, especially older individuals. Uh, Leanna, are there uh, distinctions based on geography or race or ethnicity that we should be aware of? Sure, sure. Um, so with the supplemental poverty measure, we seem we tend to have higher poverty rates on the coasts in California and New Jersey, Maryland, 
um, on the coast compared to what we see with the official poverty measure um, because there is lower cost of living, so their thresholds are lower um, in more rural areas. Um, in terms of race, uh, we have higher poverty rates for um, black individuals, Hispanic individuals, and lower poverty rates for uh, non-Hispanic white individuals. Professor Schaefer, which groups are most at risk of staying in or falling back into poverty? Well, I was going to say that we have our two poverty measures that tell us, as Liana mentioned, somewhat different stories of of who is poor in society. Um, Because of the two different measures and just a lot of question about um, what we should be looking at, I like to look at a lot of different indicators. And what we do find is that families with children, when you look at a set of uh, direct measures of well-being, we see that families with children They're the most likely to report that they're having trouble putting food on the table, the most likely to report they're having trouble paying their rent or paying for their utilities. Um, And so I think that's an important um, sort of uh, double check on our poverty numbers to say, um, when we look at these direct measures of well-being, it's families with kids that um, have a lot of the the biggest challenges. Uh, Seniors, of course, are having a really difficult time right now. So in the Census Bureau report, we saw a poverty increase among seniors, and and that uh, has to do with uh, rising living costs that Jennifer has mentioned. Um, And, uh, you know, many of the sources of of safety net support uh, that are available to seniors are are a bit more static. We didn't change them as much during during the COVID experience. I just wanted to track back to one final thing uh, in answer to your question that Jennifer brought up, which is its difference between rural and and urban poverty. We've been really, really good uh, over the the last uh, decade plus of um, figuring out sort of the challenges of experiencing poverty in urban areas and accounting for those in our um, official poverty statistics uh, with the supplemental poverty measure in particular. Um, But as Jennifer mentioned, rural areas uh, tend to have very little access to other sort of safety net supports. There are just fewer social service agencies that are there to help you if you can't pay the rent or you're really, really struggling. I've been in a county in Mississippi that didn't have any ambulance service. If you needed an ambulance, you had to make it to the county line. Uh, Lots of rural areas that don't have access to health care systems. And uh, so I think that's something that we really have to understand, that there, there are benefits in urban areas, uh, many challenges as too, um, but that don't exist in, in very poor rural areas. And so I think don't provide the types of supports to uh, get out of poverty over time. Well, we're hearing from lots of you this hour. Golden emails. In my 30s, I got sick and was able unable to pay for all my medical needs. I was about to go on Medicaid, but was startled to be told I had to spend down all my savings down to $2,000 to qualify. I could see that there would be no way out of poverty. We also got this email from Rebecca who says, why is disability always absent from conversations about poverty? I am 46 years old, legally blind, and survive on food stamps and social security disability. I have tried and tried to gain employment, but our society, including employers, can't move past the quote-unquote disabled equals incompetent mentality. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what Rebecca shares there, Professor Sherman. Oh, God, I think that's so important. And I mean, that is 
a huge piece of what I see in rural communities in particular. You know, um, I've done a lot of my work in the Northwest in places that have historic ties to the logging industry. And disability is an enormous part of the story, particularly for, for men who were active in these kinds of jobs that are, you know, really physically demanding, but also incredibly dangerous. Um, and what we've seen is that, you know, just a, a huge proportion of folks get get injured on the job and a lot of them try to keep working. They often don't have the healthcare they need to get properly treated. And so from early on in my career, I've seen, you know, injuries that are absolutely treatable become lifelong disabilities and become the reason that people just can't go back to work. Um, And as your caller points out, you know, there's a huge discrimination in the labor force against people with disabilities. So even those who often want to work have a really hard time getting back into tight labor markets. Um, And it is just an enormous part of the story, particularly in places like the ones I study where there, you know, often there isn't great medical care, whether it's for an acute injury and you just can't get to the hospital in time and you can't get it treated in time, or for the long-term injuries that really require people to have regular medical care. If you're traveling over an hour to get to the nearest hospital for regular treatments, that's going to really impact your ability to hold a job. Um, so yeah, I think it's an incredibly important part of the story, and it is often the thing that that you know keeps a, somebody who's otherwise kind of you know attached to the labor market out of it. Part of what I'm I'm gleaning from our conversation so far is that this is a, a very complex issue. It's it's hard to define. Um, there are there are layers of how people may um, personally think about what it means to be poor. Professor Schaefer, what are some of the limitations in how we think and talk about poverty in the U.S.? Well, I think just inviting listeners to uh, think about it and think about what they think uh, families would need to, um, you know, have access to um, a healthy and productive life. Uh, I think most people would put affordable housing on uh, there. And so we should be talking about expanding the um, number of affordable homes. We should be talking about um, healthy homes and improving the housing stock that we have. Um, I think there's an income support of, uh, piece of it. I think we often find, you know, feel that poverty is an intractable problem. But we just had in 2021 one of the most remarkable examples of um, a transformational change when it comes to poverty, right? This huge reduction in child poverty. And that was accompanied by food insecurity falling to the lowest level and all of these other indicators improving. So I think if we couple a strong safety net, uh, more affordable housing, and a strong labor market, we really can make progress. We're discussing what it means to be poor in America as part of our series on poverty. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. And remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our discussion about poverty in America with this message from Teddy in Virginia. Seven years ago, I went through uh, almost two and a half years of homelessness. Uh, It was quite an experience given that before I became homeless, I was actually working as a defense consultant making over six figures. Uh, It goes to show how life could be very tenuous. One second, uh, enjoying an upper middle class lifestyle. Uh, Next second, uh, two and a half years of homelessness. Teddy, thanks for that message. Professor Schaefer, what are the main reasons people end up below or near the poverty line? 
Well, one of them, just like Teddy mentioned, was access to affordable housing. Uh, so that can create a crisis point for families. And we know that there's no place in the country where a full-time minimum wage job will be able to afford uh, a market rate uh, rental. Um, another is instability in the labor market. So we see a lot of families who are working in jobs where uh, hours uh, in retail or as a service sector where hours might change, uh, might go up, go down. Um, and finally, instability in family lives and just overall life. Uh, so Ray McCormick was uh, one of the moms in the book that I uh, wrote that you mentioned. She loved her job at Walmart. She was a cashier at Walmart. She had been named um, cashier of the month uh, two times in the six months she was in the job. But she got into the truck that she uh, shared um, with her uh, uncle, unrelated uncle, uh, who she was living with. Uh, she was doubled up because she couldn't afford a place to live. Uh, turned it on and the, the gas light popped on uh, and she couldn't get to work. And she was told if she couldn't get to work, she shouldn't bother coming in again. So here we see just uh, um, that sort of tenuous sort of uh, razor uh, edge that families have to live on, right? Where families are um, managing instability in their family lives. You know, uh, families have become more complicated over time, uh, access to affordable housing, and then sometimes uh, an unforgiving labor market. It also makes me wonder, Professor Schaefer, how often you see people like Teddy who go from being financially secure to financially insecure in a relatively short period of time. That's right. We know that um, most spells of poverty are, are exactly that, spells of poverty. So families uh, who, who might be in poverty uh, do get a, a leg in the labor market or uh, their circumstances changes and they might be doing better over the long term. But lots of families who, uh, as you mentioned in the start of the show, are just living uh, a little bit above the, uh, above the poverty line and are really still struggling to make ends meet. Uh, Liana mentioned this remarkable success that we had with the expansion of the child tax credit, where we saw child poverty plummet to the lowest level that it's ever been and really just shocked downwards. And we could see improvements across so many other indicators of well-being. Food insecurity among households with children fell to the lowest level. The percent who couldn't afford a, a $400 crisis fell to the lowest level. Bank balances went up. And so really you want to, to give families an extra economic cushion, uh, that sort of that, that little bit of a safety net um, that can catch them when they fall and, and hopefully make it so like someone uh, like Ray McCormick, uh, when she has that crisis moment, she doesn't fall into a spell of extreme poverty, but uh, rather is able to keep that job. Well, Professor Sherman, how difficult is it for someone to get out of poverty once they're in it? it Professor Schaefer referred to spells of poverty, but is it stickier for some people than others? Gosh, I mean, it really will depend often on other factors, right? So the structure of the society and the place that they're in will really heavily impact how difficult uh, or easy it is to get out of poverty. So it's going to depend on things like the labor market, right? Are there are there other jobs, right? Is there something similar available in the time and place that you're in? Um, it's going to depend also on what caused that spell and whether it is, you know, a one-time issue or a lot of times that, that crisis isn't over, you know, with an <laughs> with filling your gas tank, right? That crisis might be medical, that crisis might be a family member. Um, and it isn't always so easy to just find your way out of it. So for, 
you know, it's also going to depend a lot on housing. And I think that is one of the bigger issues right now is that housing prices have been going up so fast and obviously wages have not. Um, and so it's going to depend on can you stabilize your living situation or does that you know momentary loss of income mean that things spiral out a lot worse because it, it you know just destabilizes everything else in your life. Now, Liana, the, the Census Bureau revises the poverty threshold every year. What does that process look like? So for the official poverty measure, the threshold is just adjusted by inflation. So it's the 12-month inflation year over year. So between 2020 and 2021, that was an increase of 4.7%. For the supplemental poverty measure, our thresholds are based on actual expenditures of food, clothing, shelter, and utilities. And this is a threshold produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics for us, which takes into account the bundle of goods that, that folks at the median or the center of the distribution actually spend. Um, so we can look and see how that bundle of goods changes over time. And that's how we set the thresholds. We got this email from Words who says, why does America, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, have one of the lowest measures of poverty of all first world countries? Seems anyone would know no one can live in the U.S. with the basic poverty rate set at the U.S. Liana, what are your thoughts? That's a very common criticism that we hear. And that's why we also produce a the different income to poverty ratio categories. So um, 100% of poverty is is set. This was determined, uh, our measure for official poverty was determined by our Office of Management and Budgets Statistical Policy Directive 14 that we follow. Um, and there's lots of criticisms that that's too low. That's why we, we've developed the supplemental poverty measure, which is, is subtracting out necessary expenses. But if you're interested in looking at, at a higher level, you could you could look at uh, the number of people falling below 200% of poverty or below 150%. Hmm. Professor Sherman, you've argued that the current poverty line is too low. For one person, that threshold is a little under $13,000. Why do you think it's too low? Uh, well, I mean, there's a few reasons. Historically, the official poverty measure is based on the cost of food and doesn't take into account things like the cost of housing. Um, and it was set originally at, you know, three times the cost of food at a time period where Americans spent about a third of their income on food. Um, we now spend way less of our income on food and, and a lot more of it on things like housing that are rising very rapidly. So it really just isn't a great measure of need. Um, and then, you know, as as we've been discussing, you can look at people that are 150% of poverty, 200% of poverty, and depending on where they're living, they're still often facing really intense need. Um, so I often in my research will not make a huge distinction between people who fall below the official poverty line and those who are low income, which I often set at 150 or 200 percent of poverty, because although those low income folks usually have a little bit more wiggle room, um, they are still facing a lot of the same challenges in terms of things, you know, like basic needs, like food, housing, transportation, all of that. Um, so, you know, the poverty line in, in any place is going to be a line in the sand. But here in the U.S., it is, uh, as your caller points out, <laughs> very low. It's, it, you know, it is set way below what people truly need to survive. Professor Schaefer, I feel like we can't have this conversation without also talking about income inequality. How does poverty intersect with that? Well, you can imagine a set of policies that uh, reduce poverty by bringing everyone up to uh, a certain level um, that all, where inequality might also increase. So in 2021, we saw exactly that, where um, the economic stability of families at the very bottom 
was improved uh, with a set of policies that are no longer in place. And we're at a crossroads of whether or not we go back to what we did before or we, or we take another look at those policies. In the same time, inequality increased. So um, people really can uh, have a very vigorous debate about what should be our biggest uh, focus. Should it be on um, inequality narrowing the divide between the, the, those at the very top and those at the very bottom or bringing everyone up to a certain threshold? You know, briefly, I, I want us to get into what solutions you see for addressing poverty in America. We've got just about a minute here. Professor Schaefer, what do you think we should focus on? The first thing we should do is bring back the expanded child tax credit. Uh, it just was a remarkable moment, and we saw so many indicators that improved. Um, during this time when people are really struggling, uh, that's just something that we should look at very closely. And then we should look at some of these questions of, of what government shouldn't be doing. So one of the structural cycle of po poverty drivers are fines and fees, where um, uh, tickets for not having auto insurance or uh, for registering your car have gone up, all sorts of things. And families can get caught in that and have their license suspended. So there's a whole scope of work to figure out where do we make like life harder for uh, poor families. Professor Sherman, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I will um, expand upon that a little bit. Um, I've recently been working with a lot of folks who have been uh, incarcerated, and we absolutely find this, that the the worse your financial situation, the bigger impact even one jail stay will have on your life because of these kinds of fines and fees and the license suspensions, right? If your license is suspended, and particularly in a rural area, how do you get to work? If you can't get to work, how do you pay the fines back, right? So for people um, who are on the edge, just a, you know, one jail stay can be the thing that spirals their whole life out. Um, but I think we also need to think about supports for things like childcare and housing um, and or income, right? Mm -hmm. the jobs need to pay enough to survive or we need to help people survive. That's Jennifer Sherman. She's a professor of sociology at Washington State University. She's also the author of Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality and the Diminishing American Dream. Also with us, Luke Schaefer, a professor of social justice and social policy at the University of Michigan. He's also co-author of the book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. And Liana Fox. She's the assistant division chief of economic characteristics and social, economic, and housing statistics at the U.S. Census Bureau. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.